morning, everyone. Really, really glad you're here. Trust this will be a, a meaningful worship service for you. I think it already has. Uh, if anything happens here like's happen, like happened at the end of the last service after the message and the music and such, we really had a very powerful time with God. Wherever you're at in that journey, I, I pray that this will be a, uh, an important time for you in your life. Uh, I told the last congregation that uh, I've been doing this a while. I, I think I've preached over 4,000 times in my life and have probably spent 40,000, 50,000 hours in preparation. Uh, and I'm amazed at what a novice I still feel like I am and that when the finite tries to handle the infinite word of God, we always come as, as learning children. So I feel that more than ever today. But I also want to say that I've been uh, in my preparations this week, which is worship for a pastor. In our, our preparation is part of our worship. It's our adoring and learning of God. Um, I kind of got smacked deeply by God's presence too in what I have to say today. If that's any indicator of what's supposed to happen to you, well, so be it. That'll be great. Okay, here we go. Uh, we have a friend. His name is Chris O'Neill. Chris O'Neill is a superb handyman. And we'll have him into our house often to fix things that just don't quite work right. He's a craftsman. Takes great pride in what he does. He was telling me a couple weeks ago that he was putting a shower stall in a, in a house. And that, you know, he did all of his measurements. He places it in there. He got it sealed, he's ready to, and he closes the shower door and there's an inch or more of a, a opening at the top that isn't there. It means it's crooked. And he goes, whoa. So he went back and redid all of his measurements and realized he was, he was right on. He had everything squared. But then he measured the room itself and the room was crooked. And I, you know, and I, I just kind of passed off of that, and then I thought, that's exactly what I'm talking about today in life. Listen, if the foundation of your life is crooked, there isn't any way to get anything right, to fit right. And that's why God created us to know Him. Uh, what we believe in this church is until a person gets right with God, everything will be a little bit or very crooked in life. And so today I hope that, uh, that you will realize nothing, nothing, nothing in life matters as much as getting right with God. Knowing that some of you are here for the first, second, third, fourth time, we're glad you're here. And uh, we look forward to greeting you in the visitor center afterwards and such. Um, but some of you are probably thinking, I do want to get this thing with God right. Then I want to just double click on, on what you saw inside your program folder. That's why we created this Alpha course. This is the place where people come to get what is crooked made straight, to find out about God. So hope you'll consider that. May God use the reading and the uh, proclamation of his word this morning. Okay, here we go. We are talking about the life of David, but what we're really talking about is David's crooked life, getting it right with God, okay? Open your Bibles, please. Second Samuel, chapter 5, page 299 in the Bibles we provide for you in the church. 
2 Samuel chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 6 through 10. Those of you just joining us, we're studying the life of King David. We started in the fall. We'll finish just before Easter. David's a very important person in, in, uh, in this journey toward knowing God better. All right. He has been out in the wilderness, stuck in a cave, running for his life for over 10 years. That all ended in the last couple weeks as we were teaching you. And two weeks ago, I pointed out, he's, last week, he's now become king. So he's no longer rising, he's reigning, all right? Now we pick up with him, and what's the first thing he wants to do after he takes over as king? Verses 6 through 10, chapter 5. The king and his men marched to a place called Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you'll not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Verse 7, nevertheless, David captured this fortress of Zion. Now, Zion is often a term that's synonymous with Jerusalem. The term Zion is used in the scripture 150 times. The term Jerusalem is used 800 times. Between those two terms, Jerusalem, Zion, is mentioned nearly a thousand times. We'll talk about that more in just a second. You say, well, what does Zion mean? Nobody knows for sure. But the best guess, at least some scholars make, is that it means eminence. Eminence. All right. So they took the eminence, the fortress of Zion, which then becomes called the city of David. And on that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That's why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress, and he called it the city of David. And he built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the capital of David's kingdom. Jerusalem at the far north of the nation, which you kind of think of as the state of Judah, and it borders the other 11 states or tribes of Israel. So it's the perfect place to put the capital. Number two, it's great from a military viewpoint. It's 2,400 feet above sea level, which is high in Israel. And secondly, on top of that, it's almost unconquerable. Jerusalem is surrounded on three sides by ravines, deep valleys, or rock cliffs. And for 900 years, get that? 900 years, the Jebusites have commanded it. They're not even a really strong people, but you can't take Jerusalem. Joshua couldn't take Jerusalem. When he crosses the Jordan River and heads in, and God's told them to take all the land, they couldn't conquer Jerusalem at that time. But David will. God wants David to, and David will. And he uses a little bit of ingenuity. Now, when you're studying the life of David, you pick up a leadership skill, and you you pick up an entrepreneurial sort of intelligence. That's why he used a slingshot with Goliath instead of trying to fight a nine-foot warrior with a sword. Okay, He was a sniper, and he could knock down anything with that slingshot. 
and he knew, he didn't, we know now that a slingshot casting a stone with effectiveness is almost as fast as a speeding bullet. So it took him out. Now, he does the same thing again. Did someone tell him this? Undoubtedly. But he listens. Somebody said, you can't take Jerusalem even if we go at it with our 300,000 man army, even if we go at it with our special ops forces, you can't take it. Somebody told him there is a way, and the way was the water channel. You see it there, the water shaft in verse number 8. The Gihon Spring flows right outside of Jerusalem, and the water for the city comes from that spring. It doesn't go into the city, but they had done a tunnel from the spring to the city walls, then they dug down under the walls and then up 50 feet so that a well was right in the center of Jerusalem. 50 feet down, 65 feet out to the spring. When there was no war, the women would just go out the gates in the morning and have a great time going to get the water. When they're being attacked, the gates are closed, they can still get the water. David knew. I don't need 350,000 troops here. I need special ops. And so under Joab's command, a small group of soldiers go in the tunnel and then up 50 feet. And the city from which the people said even our blind and lame could defend this city is conquered just like that. So now David has Jerusalem. 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 As I said, nearly a thousand times mentioned in the Bible. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The Jews called it center of the center. They called it the center of the universe, the fulcrum of the universe. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Even today, it's the center of three great monotheistic religions in the world. Even today, you hear almost as much news about Jerusalem as you do about New York or Dubai or Singapore or London. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. Now, I want to put a picture up on the screen for you here where you can actually see a picture of a little bit of Jerusalem today. And I took that with my iPhone, and I am an absolutely terrible photographer, but that's when uh, Ted and Scott and Bill and I were down, and that's right by the Garden of Gethsemane where that shot is from and it looks up at the old city walls. Now those walls weren't there in the time of David. Those actual walls don't get built until uh, some around five, six, seven hundred AD, but there were walls around the city. But I want you to note that gate that is closed up right there, that's called the Golden Gate. And here's the next point I wanna make. Jerusalem will forever be the great city of God because we're told in the book of Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, that at the right time, God will create a new heavens and a new earth, and then the holy city of Jerusalem will descend from the heavens, and God will dwell in her. You think it's something David dwells in her. We think it's great that Jesus would visit her and die on a cross just outside her gates. But God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will reign the universe from Jerusalem and that gate is where the Bible says Jesus is going in those bricks are coming down it's going to be great Jerusalem 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 now 
This is a great time for David. Look at verse 10. He became more and more powerful. For those of you that want to follow us using Bibles that uh, we provide, they're right on the backs of the chairs. Page 299 is where we're at. More and more powerful. And here's what I want to say. I'm going to turn a twist on this. This is a time of danger for David. David is in more danger now than he was living in caves, than when he was living in caves for 10 years fleeing from Saul. Why? Because success and power and wealth generally diminish people, not make them greater. I mean, when it comes to the development of the human soul, those things generally diminish us and don't make us greater. They become dangerous. And they must be held and wielded by intense humility and Christfulness. How will David do? Well, um, he's going to pass. But he's not going to pass easily. You'll see in the next weeks, you'll see even today, where some of that starts to get a hold of David in the wrong way. He's in danger. He needs God more than ever before. God promises to be with him. And so now, let's see what happens from here. So now that he's conquered the city, chapter 6. One of the first things he does after getting a hold of the city is, and this is, this is the good David now, David wants this to be the center of the worship of God, not him. He wants this to be the place where Lord God Almighty is lifted up. And the way that can best happen is for that element God has created in the time of Moses called the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem, which represents to the people the presence of God. And he wants there to be a true king in Jerusalem. It's not him, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So, chapter 6, 1 and 2. David brings together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them. Now, we know from 1 Chronicles, which parallels uh, 2 Samuel, that David actually put out a clarion call to the far north of the land and the deep south, almost all the way down to Egypt. He called for people to come. He called for warriors to come. He called for nobility to come. And he called for musicians and artists to come. Because David knew that when God revealed these things to Moses, great artistry was given to representing it all. And so he gathers them all. And they go to the place called Bela, which is also uh, another name for Kiriath-Jerith. It's in Judah. It's about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, comma, and here's what its name is, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. We're going to show you a picture of the Ark now so you can kind of see this better. The ark, which was the idea was given to Moses by God and his artists and craftsmen built it, is made of acacia wood. It's about four feet long, it's about two feet wide, and it's about two feet high. As you can see by our picture, it's completely covered with gold. And that's, that's not paint, that's real gold. And inside 
it's all gold as well. The acacia wood poles go through two sets of rings, and they're very, very important. Inside the ark was placed, we are told, the original Ten Commandments carved in stone given to Moses. Okay, those commandments that they kept. Two, a jar of manna, the bread that God fed them in the wilderness those years. Now we're going back hundreds of years ahead of David. And third, Aaron, Moses' brother, the chief priest, his rod which had budded. Those are within it. But here's the real key. You dealt with this object as if God was in it. And he literally promises he will be. Can you see the angels above it? The two angels that are kneeling in humility before God Almighty. Okay? Now, we're going to bring up a verse that explains what that's about. From Exodus 25, 22. There above the cover of the ark, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet you. All right? This thing is not just a symbol. God has said, between the two angels, I will meet you. And if you study the Old Testament, you see that the tabernacle and the tent in which that thing was was loaded with honest-to-goodness power. That's very important for what's about to come. Verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, who was probably a Levite, who was on the hill. Uzzah, Ahio, his sons were guiding the cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. Verse 7, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there before the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means the wrath of of God explodes. How can the ark of God ever come to me? And David, verse 10, was no longer willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Well, why? This is an honest-to-goodness good guy named Uzzah who sees the ark starting to stumble on the cart when the oxen goes into a hole or something, and he reaches out to preserve and protect the ark of God, and he's killed instantaneously. What do we do with this? Was David mad at him? Mad at God? 
mattered himself. All we know is they stopped the procession. This huge, huge thing, it stopped right now. We are not doing something right. This is frightening. The wrath and the power of God had broken out. Wow. What do we do with that? First of all, we learn this. Here's going to be the application. We don't manage God. We'd like to. We'd like God to be someone that we use for our purposes. We don't. Secondly, God is much greater than we can imagine. This is a good time to deal with the term holiness. But give me just a minute here. When God designed the ark and had the builders build it, he set some very important laws for the handling of it. Number one, only Levites could carry it. Number two, only by lifting those poles and walking with them. You don't put the ark of God on a cart. In fact, 60 years earlier, the Philistines who had stolen the ark put it on a cart. And it ended up destroying Philistines, and it ended up even destroying Israelis who, when they returned it on a cart to Israel, dared to look in it, and 70 of them were killed. These are Israelis just like that. This is the place in that epoch of time where God said he would display his manifest presence. So the priests that were consigned to carry it, they were told even when they're carrying it, they were not to look at it and they were not to touch it. Wow. Well, shocking, huh? The holiness of God. When, when you and I think of holiness, we tend, I think, I do, think of holiness as primarily a goodness deal. Somebody's really holy. That's such a good person. They're like holy. God is really holy. God is really pure. Yes, that is one of the two key definitions behind the word holy. But here's the other one. The second definition of holy means utterly other. Set apart. Indefinable. God is a holy other God. He is alive on his own terms. He is alive in a way that exceeds any human being's experience, intelligence, or imagination. This is God, creator of heaven and earth. He who holds the atoms together. He who lifts up his voice and the universe switches gears. This is God. And God said, Thou shalt not touch. This isn't the only time. When Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, God warns him and said, You tell the people to not even touch the foot of this mountain, to touch the foot of the mountain, and I will break out on them. 
I don't understand that. I just know. Moses says, God, if I could just see your face. What did God say? You can't see my face and live. Right? When Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord lifted up, he trembled. When Daniel saw a vision of the Lord in his prayers, he fainted. When the great John the Apostle in Revelation has Jesus Christ appear to him in glory and gold and lightning, he falls as if dead. This is God. You see, uh, I kind of like the Jesus side better. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I just want you to know, even in Jesus, you're not dealing with an only, only a man. I mean, there's one time in the book of John when they've come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come in Jesus says to them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, the, and John says, Jesus said three words, I am he. And they all fell back on the ground. So please know what you're dealing with, who you're dealing with, when you come near to God. Indiana Jones had it more right than we know. Right? How many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark number one? It's now being passed fathers, children, grandchildren, I know. But you remember when they're looking for the ark and they find it in uh, Egypt, incidentally, it's not there, nor is it in the National Archives, uh, which that movie suggests. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 says it's in heaven. Okay? But when the bad guys dare to open it, and Indiana Jones is going, don't, 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 and they do anyway, what happens? Massive light and energy, almost like of, of an atomic nature, bursts out. And what happens to the bad guys? They melt. That's closer than you can imagine what it is why does God manifest himself I don't know but remember my experience my reasoning and my imagination cannot manage who God is this is the way in that time he would manifest himself between the angels stunning absolutely stunning now what's it say to us What's it say to you? I know where it was hitting me this week. God, forgive me when I'm too casual. God, forgive me when I'm dabbling with you, when I trifle with you. You're not safe. <laughs> There's a wonderful uh, chapter of which I'm going to read just one page in, in this great little book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I have my original copy, which I got 40 years ago. It's falling apart. I tape it together, but I've written notes in it for all those years. And, and in this, we have C.S. Lewis seeking to present this majesty, this untouchability of God. And the four children that are in Narnia, 
being lectured to by two great theologians who are beavers, incidentally. <laughs> they say to the four children, well, when Aslan comes, everything will be put right. And they say, who's Aslan? And then one of them says, well, you'll understand when you see him. We shall see him, said Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you will meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man, said Lucy? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mrs. Beaver, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And Lucy goes, well, then he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Wow. Pretty good. God is God on his dimensions, not on ours. Whenever you speak to God or think of God, you are on holy ground. And take this further. Those of you who know Jesus Christ and have received him as your Savior and Lord, God dwells in you. The ark is in you. What's that mean for us? It means there's implications to our worship. Do I approach God too casually? My wife Marie said to me that a couple of years ago she realized she shouldn't think of her personal um, worship time with God as a quiet time any longer or her time with God. She realized, especially when the kids were younger, she wanted time with God, but that it was, God, didn't, God wasn't the issue as much as just time alone. And to call it a quiet time, is, she says, just still kind of like, this is my time. She says, now she calls it this, devotions. It's where she reestablishes her devotion to God pretty good when we come to church do you get yourself ready do you read the devotions we send out every week on the passage before you get here do you pray do you get yourself cleaned up before God before you even get here or do you say I wonder who's preaching today I like this guy I don't like that one. Oh gosh and if they have that music folks you're in danger land Eugene Peterson, the great theologian, pastor, says every church everywhere in the world ought to have a sign outside their front doors that says, beware of God. Because he's there. Well, David gets it right. Thank goodness. David and, and the scholars, they start studying the ancient literature again, and they realize that what they had done 
and they get it all right. And it says in verse 12 that, uh, that David is going to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, but this time he's going to do it right. This time they have studied. They know you don't touch it. You know you don't put it on a cart. And you know it's a special group of people that lift those poles. And it says in the text, as you keep reading through uh, verse 12, it says they're carrying the ark of God, verse 13. They took six steps, stopped, and a bull and a calf were offered to God. So <laughs> two, three, four. These guys are still carrying this thing. And then they offer these things. Six steps. Some scholars believe that every six steps for the rest of the 15 miles they stopped and offered. They have readjusted that they're not carrying God. God is among them. <laughs> and they do everything right. And then look at David. I love it, I love it, I love it. So David is wearing a linen aphod. It's kind of like a robe. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a girl's dress. Uh, it it's, it's just covers him right there, uh, verse 13. And he's, I, I think he has his royal robes on under, but that's just my issue with David. And then it says, and he's not only wearing that, but he's dancing before the Lord. And it says, with all his might, verse 14. Dancing before the Lord with all his might. In the rest of that chapter, four times it says, before the Lord before the Lord. So the musicians are singing and they're playing. The choir is present. The soldiers are marching. The nobility are there. But David, David dresses like a priest, like someone who's absolutely bowed before God. And it says he dances. We don't even know what that word dance means in the Hebrew exactly. It's used two times in all of the Bible and it's both referring to David at this moment. The best that they've done with it, uh, Hebrew scholars, is to say that it means twirl. You know, like little kids do when they're really happy. Oh my goodness, a king is doing that? Yes. And what is David doing? David's life is filled with pure gratitude that this God would love him. That this God could forgive him. That this God would make him a king. That this God would let him live and breathe at all. And he does that which is most natural to Christians. He worships. And the worship means that you ascribe all worth to God. It means that you stop thinking about yourself and you give yourself completely to him. And when we add to this idea, that of Jesus Christ, God himself, coming to earth, living amongst us, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, promising heaven to all who believe in him. We worship, we worship, we worship. And worship means it's all about God and it's not about me. Now, his wife sees him. And I close with this. She's looking out the window. She's the daughter of a king. She's married to a king. And you know what it says there? In verse number 16, she despised him in her heart. But David says in verse 22, 
I'll become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes because I am worshiping the Lord God Almighty. Wow. One more slide on the screen as I bring this to a close. Worship is how we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves. Worship rewires me the right way. Worship, which means total focus on God. It means listening to the sermon. It means interacting with text. It means singing songs. It means preparing ourselves before we come. It's God-focused totally. When we do that, it squares up our foundation and it turns the crooked ways and makes them straight. Only God can bring us back to our senses. Only God can correct our crookedness. And he does. In Jesus Christ our Lord, let's pray.